The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. We are a very united family. In this home, we've had the habit of gracious living. We've prided ourselves on our tolerance and our sense of humor. Good heavens, here I am making another speech. <laughs> well, I can think of no better wish than this. May our happiness continue as long as we live. Professor! Herr Professor and Frau Professor, something wonderful has happened. We have just heard. They have made Adolf Hitler Chancellor of Germany. Well, that's stupendous. If it's true. Is it official? It is true. It is official. It's coming in on all the stations. Let's find out. Let's get the radio. Yeah, yeah. Come on. Adolf Hitler, Chancellor, and appointed by Hindenburg. What can he be thinking of? There it is. The news swept the capital like wildfire. The delirious frenzy of the people defies description. Thousands of men and women are gathered outside the Chancellery. They've waited here for hours, hoping for a glimpse of our great leader, our new Chancellor. Wait. The door of the Chancellor's office is open. He's coming out. Our leader. He address the people. He's crossing the hall, he's stepping out to the balcony. Listen! Listen to the voice of a proud people acclaiming the man who will lead them back to power and glory! Good morning, London. It is Thursday, September 2nd, 2010. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Today on the show, leadership, a most ominous word, and we want to talk about leadership in politics, leadership in economics, and leadership, a comparison of yesterday and today. That's our theme today, where 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation, and as always, write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Well, Robert, I've been hearing a lot of talk lately about how leadership is an issue in the current municipal elections here in London and across Ontario on October 25th. I understand Stephen Harper is in town today. He is. He's doing a little bit of a leadership trip. And, you know, when we looked at this issue, I started second-guessing my thoughts about leadership. And I really wonder if leadership is an issue at all, ever. And I mean, At least today. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> and in a certain sense, too. I think there's two ways to look at it. You can either argue that we've got too many leaders with diametrically opposing interests, not philosophies, but interests. That's the problem. And uh, No, they all have the same philosophy. <laughs> yes, and whose leadership, or that is, whose political direction has become a problem. Or you could equally argue that leadership's not an issue because there are no leaders upon whom leadership qualities that maybe that we define as leadership qualities can be found. In a democracy, it's dangerous to be a leader since getting elected depends upon the illusion of doing what the public wants. So do you really lead or do you follow, you know? Follow the polls. Yes. Now, I think personally modern nations are adrift on a sea of leaderless direction floating in a single direction towards the left and always away from the right in, in, in the frame of reference that we talk about it here. Uh, U.S. President Obama, I hate to say, is possibly one of the worst 
quote-unquote leaders I've had the displeasure of having to live through in my he's, life. He's an abomination. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Here in Ontario, we've got Dalton McGinty, whose utterly blind rule and patently destructive leadership would just take us pack on a path to barbarism. I, I, just something we'd, unknown in Ontario. I have nothing positive to say about either leader. They're, they're among the worst in the Western world, and you have to ask yourself, how, how has it come to this? The entire world is suffering a crisis in leadership, if you want to call it that. Um, Obama's presidency, I think, has been a train wreck from day one. He has no declared enemy to fight, uh, other than the American taxpayer, really. That's his only enemy. <laughs> He's one of the many who su succumbed to aspiring to zero in the sum game of political leadership. That's what our, our leaders call for today. They call repeatedly for sacrifice and lower expectations and, and you know, the moral equivalence he has in his stand on the Mideast War and in other world conflicts. His advocacy of state control and regulation of everything from health care to the economy. These are all symptoms, I think, of a complete absence of leadership. Not leadership. And that's why I say I think that there's no leaders in the world today, almost literally. I know there's one or two, and I've mentioned them, and they're such, such standouts, you know, people that I would, I would call leaders. Vaclav Klaus was one we talked about. Mm -hmm. and, um, but not in the meaning of true leadership. And why this is so is what I think Robert and I are going to try and attempt to define and demonstrate today. And since we're specifically talking about leadership and government, it's important to understand the relationship of leadership to government. That is the true role that leadership must play in any effective government. And I'll be willing to bet that almost every person listening to this broadcast right now will not have heard this before, except perhaps, perhaps in very disjointed and unrelated terms. Now, last week, strangely enough, our, our issue on, um, on conspiracies is a little bit related to this. We talked about the New World Order, and I quoted from Scottish philosopher John McMurray in terms of what is the purpose of government. And um, very much he talked about basically it's it, the purpose of the state is the elimination of the use of force in human intercourse. You know, and he talked about how that is what the government should be about. It's not the use of force, but the elimination of force that government should be doing in society, the achievement of freedom through justice. Now, in looking this up, I, uh, I, I had to turn to another one of my favorite authors and, and philosophers, and that is Isabel Patterson, who wrote the infamous God of the Machine. And, famous. I wouldn't say it's infamous. Well, <laughs> it's infamous in some circles, let's put it that oh, way. Sure. Yeah, and uh, there's been a lot written about her lately that you might not be aware of, because she played such a big role in Ayn Rand's life, and in the biographies there's a lot of crossover, and you, you know, suddenly her name is, is being seen more. But she talks about leadership in a, in a chapter of her book called The Fallacy of Anarchism, strangely enough. And it was written in 1943, very important to note because that was during World War II. And she describes, I'm basically taking what she has here and I'm putting my own words to this and mixing them in a bit with hers. So I haven't done it quite that way before, but I thought it would be much clearer than getting into all the minutia of the detail that she got into. And basically she argues that the stage of development in which government becomes necessary is really easily discovered, but then cites the fact that no one's ever written about, quote, the specific connection of the mechanism of government to the productive order, end quote. Now, I always have to point out that the word production is not just some economic term used in academic circles, though it is that too, but production for human beings represents life itself and the quality of life to which we all aspire. So production is, above all, the most important thing that we as a society have to do in order to increase our standard of living and have a standard of living that we aspire to. 
But again, you know, Patterson says that because of this, you know, there's various conflicting guesses as to the origin and nature of government, with the main theory suggesting that government arises from war and therefore is force per se. And of course, she says that's doubly false because it reverses the natural order of the true relation, and because it's the only argument used by advocates of the absolute state, which is the platonic view of life, I guess. Government by force, she says, is a contradiction in terms and an impossibility in physics. Force is what is governed. Government originates in the moral faculty, and the essence of self-government consists in keeping promises. Then we get to the issue of property, important in a free society. All property, which is ownership, and Isabel Patterson in her way always describes it in a different way. She says it's a claim through time, and she talks about the time-space factor. And that's introduced by things like primitive agriculture, that time between sowing and harvest, which imposes a claim on a certain plot of ground that needs to be preserved in order to see the harvest to the end, right? You've got to be able to, to know that that land is yours. So in that example, space would be the plot of ground, time would be the specific period of nature cycle required to grow a crop. Now, if you move to something like livestock, say, the time-space requirement for animal husbandry would have to be increased accordingly. I can't count the number of old westerns I watched that were exactly about that theme, Robert. Almost every western, you know, somebody making a land claim, trying to, or moving their cattle across the, the, the plains over somebody else's property who tended to object, you know. And, and, of course, if you were to move beyond agriculture to labor-saving technologies, which always expands jobs, or to technologies that allow us to communicate with each other on the Internet or create TV sets or any possible invention you can think of, the time-space factor that Patterson refers to becomes greater in proportion to the objective involved. Like going into space would take quite a bit of a time-space factor. And the process of capital accumulation and technological process and money itself require claims through time, which are not possible in a primitive tribal society. And why is that? Because the necessary time required, whether for capital accumulation or for technological advancement, is greater than the average person's lifetime. So you have a problem. If you want to do a task that's greater than a single person's ability or extends into the next generation or two, you have to have some protection of that work, of that effort. And that's why we have things like property rights. Now, how this problem was solved in earlier societies and economies, Patterson explained thusly. She said, with respect to the most primitive stage of agriculture, requiring a period between sowing and harvest, quote, the barbarians conceded positive power to their chief. His word would be enforced, not only immediately, but at a distance, as long as it was in accord with custom and with property rights. To avoid a break in authority, that is, in the time relation, the hereditary principle came in, end quote. That's why it was so important to king and kings and queens, eh? That's why, remember we talked about the uh, monarchy on a show, I think that last year already, and uh, we, we sort of realized that the roots of the monarchy had a lot to do with natural law and the way it extended into property rights. Now, at this point, Patterson explains that the hereditary system cannot be invariable, she says, and cites a brief historical account from the dynasties of medieval Japan to the sultans of the Ottoman Empire to the development of feudal monarchies in Europe. She does this all in a few paragraphs, concluding that, quote, there is nothing novel in the blood purges of rivals by modern dictators. Whenever a legitimate means of politi political succession is not provided, it must occur. 
In the form of voting is not enough if the energy of the nation has been subverted so that elections are controlled from above, bought by the use of tax money, this resort to violence will soon be made. And I think this is the, the critical issue because the inevitability of violence that arises from an improper application of government to production, which again is mankind's only mean of survival, is what we want to avoid wherever possible. We want to avoid violence in society. And whether that violence is disorganized, as we saw at the recent G8 and G20 summits, or organized, as we saw at the G8 and G20 summits, violence is inevitable under a lack of government. And, you know, what we call organized labor is not really organized labor, but organized and legalized violence. That's what we call it that. Labor is organized by management, <laughs> not by thugs and, and things like that. So they, they're just organizing violence and legalizing and being able to use coercion against their citizens, against the marketplace. And that's why the type of leadership we have today is not leadership. And what we call, you know, these, these, these people that operate on organized violence, they're eventually going to break down and destroy themselves too because this kind of thinking by its nature is self-destructive. Violence and the resort to it, in whatever shape it takes, is a consequence of very short-term thinking. You can't think long-term and plan with violence. You can't plan a trip to the moon and figure out who you're going to beat up along the way. It doesn't work that way. Long-term projects like wealth and prosperity cannot come into being in an environment of violence or of non-consensual relationships. We don't tolerate it in sex. I've noticed that. Why do we tolerate it in politics and economics and labor relations? It's just, where is the consent in those areas? Isn't that what our leaders should be protecting? Says, says Isabel Patterson, she says, force cannot compel obedience in the social order. Boy, I wish we'd learned that lesson alone right there, eh? What it can affect is death, whether of subject or king. Where force is the arbiter, government ceases. Now, that's phenomenal. As soon as you're governing by force, you, you don't have government anymore because it's not about keeping promises anymore, isn't it? Is it? That's what government is. Self-government is keeping promise. Force makes you break your promises. And that's what we see happening all around us today. And she says, this is so because of the intrinsic nature of the political mechanism, which is and must be the same, whatever its form. It is an instrument of negation and can be nothing more. So Patterson then points out that if it were possible to measure exactly the amount of force or intimidation used by governments upon their citizens, it's kind of like trying to measure, you know, in the light theory, lighter particle, wave or particle. You can't really take that measurement, but the economy is like that too. And then she says, quote, and expressed in a mathematical equation with the ratio of the increase of force, the sum would give the length of time remaining before either the government or the nation or both must collapse. The event must depend upon the volume of energy in use for production, she says, versus what she calls the dead loan load energy drain on society, which is government. When the latter energy drain, government, is sufficient to destroy the former, production, then a society collapses in every sense possible. Unless liberty is regained, she writes, the mode of conversion of energy will revert to a lower level, and the population will be reduced by war and famine to the lower optimum which can be subsisted at that level. Now, this describes a lot of the world today, especially the Mideast portion and the areas that are constantly at this lower level of production because they're in a state of violence all the time. She says this process is now going on in Europe, now remember, this was written in 1943, so she's talking about Adolf Hitler in World War II, though it wasn't called that then. 
The prime cause of the war, writes Patterson, was the, and this is in Germany, was the introduction of a high energy potential, namely industrial development, into Germany when the political form could not accommodate it. So here comes, you know, this, this uh, high production. Henry Ford and all his ideas comes into a, a country that has not got a government in place that can accommodate that kind of economic relationships. And so it's a disaster. And she writes, while industry got up steam during the 19th century, political changes were in reverse. More and more power accruing to government under quote-unquote socializing measures. The present explosion is the result, World War II. And with that, we take a break and take a little visit to World War II. This is, uh, and our opening clip was from the movie The Mortal Storm, which was filmed in 1940, and starring Jimmy Stewart, Robert Young, Margaret Sullivan, and Frank Morgan. And it was uh, kind of a depressing movie, to tell you the honest truth, Robert, but it certainly did tell a story. And we'll be back right after this. Now. What will happen? We'll what? see a new Germany. I hope it's best for all this change. Why, it means our country will be strong and powerful again, Frau Professor. Master of Europe and the world. Oh, That's right, Fritz. Fritz, I've never seen you so enthusiastic. But Freya, this is Germany's crying need, a strong man in a saddle. A leader who will fight for victory. Good old Fritz. Fritz is right. You can't put Germany back in her old place without banning. No. That's true. Hitler will only demand what is ours by right. Nations who want peace have nothing to fear. And if they want war, by heaven, they'll get it. Yes, Fritz, they will. But Fritz, now that this man's come to power, what about those who think differently, freely, those who are non-Aryan? There's no cause for alarm, my dear. You're worried about me, I think. Oh, but that's nonsense, Mother. Men like Father are an honor to Germany. Of course. Men will be judged on their merits, their records. Father, what do you think? Well, I, um, I shall wait. Men have given great power to Adolf Hitler. Let's hope responsibility brings wisdom. Amen. What's the matter with you, Martin? Nothing. Well, you don't seem very happy about this. Well, I didn't say that, Fritz. Still on the fence, Martin? That won't do, not now. Oh, now, boys, we've been all over this before. Now, you know what I... But this changes everything. Now there'll be one party and only one. Man's got to take a stand. If he's not for us, he's against us and against Germany. I don't quite agree with you, Otto. But now, we came here to celebrate Professor Roth's birthday and not chew over a whole lot of old arguments. Yes, you're getting very intolerant, all of you. We should be intolerant of anyone who opposes the will of our leader. Yes, whatever his will might be. Persecution, war. What sort of talk is that? Are you a pacifist? I think peace is better than war. A man's right to think as he believes is as good for him as food and drink. Oh, it sounds like a sort of spill the Reds dish out. I never oh, expected well, to hear it at this Red, table. Please. Well, every time I mention it, you boys, 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 can't we discuss these matters without quarreling? After all, every hen thinks she's laid the best egg. May we not believe as we choose and allow others to do the same? I'm sorry, Professor, but we're all pretty excited. It's been wonderful news, you know. I'm sorry, oh, Professor. Pardon, old man. Sorry, Professor. Well, it's better. Hmm, not that I don't like a good argument. <laughs> <laughs> USS Enterprise from starships Lexington and Excalibur. Both ships report simulated hits in sufficient quantity and location to justify awarding the surprise engagement to Enterprise. Secure from general quarters, 
Our compliments to the M5 unit and regards to Captain Dunzel. Wesley out. Dunzel? Who the blazes is Captain Dunzel? What does it mean, Jeff? Dunsell, Doctor, is a term used by midshipmen at Starfleet Academy. It refers to a part which serves no useful purpose. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we're talking about leadership today, Robert Vaughn and myself. And, you know, that was from, of course, uh, the old Star Trek series, Captain Dunsell, and, you know, he was being replaced by the god of the machine, the M5. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, his uh, his role was not necessary. It's interesting, uh, Isabel Patterson argues that a major contributor to the cause of the war, World War II, was the leadership principle. Once a nation enters a high-energy situation of production, a proper government no longer requires leadership such as we know it. And she writes it this way. She says, in a settled and productive society, leadership is completely impractical because continuity is necessary with the time-space factor in economics. The two cannot exist together because the essential characteristic of leadership, the bloodless deposition, uh, deposition of the leader by dropping away of his following, has been lost. We don't do that anymore. With permanent, with permanent institutions, the form of government must include fixed tenure. This does not mean irremovable persons, but the contrary. It means legitimate change of persons in an office of predefined powers. When leadership is attempted instead, she says, what occurs is a rule of popularity by which the permanent institutions are subverted to make the leader irremovable. And you see this everywhere. It's going on in Moscow today in the Soviet Union. What an interesting observation here, Bob, is that what you get when you change leadership, especially at least with uh, Obama recently, is change. And if you're looking at that space-time continuum, you do not want change. No. You need continuity. You need continuity, and you want to know that you're not going to have that change. And, of course, she says the consequence of, is an external collision and internal disruption more or less simultaneously. Internally, you get... Uh, you know, economic disasters, externally you get wars, and the U.S. is involved in both, and so are we as Canadians. Let's not forget that. She says a, re a regime of popularity is effective for starting a war, and indeed it must be so. You can't start a war without a regime of popularity. That includes of any country, and that's why Bush's rating went, like, went off the scale after 9-11. And she writes, Napoleon himself was little more than a figurehead hurled about in front of a moving mass because Napoleon was the first of the modern leaders, quote-unquote, meaning one of the leaders you just didn't need. It, again, France went through the same problem, went into a high industry uh, situation and the, and the political system couldn't accommodate it, still can't today. And she finally concludes, she says, when the word leader or leadership is hurled about in front, or, or sorry, uh, returns to current use, it connotes a relapse into barbarism. For a civilized people, it is the most ominous word in any language, end quote. Now, 
thinking about that, you know, I've not said much about U.S. President Obama since his inauguration, mainly because he, like Canada's Liberal Party leader, Michael Ignatieff, uh, are really un- uninteresting to me, <laughs> totally. They've got nothing positive to contribute to the welfare or being of their constituents. I just I can't think of a positive thing that either of them have said, done, got my interest up about anything. Uh, you know, it's the economy, stupid. These words are attributed to a U.S. president whose presidency enjoyed a relatively prosperous American economy. And of course, as we mentioned before, it's really the stupid economy, as we noticed on a previous show, because voter satisfaction with their leaders, not surprisingly, tends to coincide with perceived economic well-being of the voters under a particular leader. They tend to be forgiving about, you know, of just about anything except a regressive or repressed economy. And that's because it's only at that point that voters themselves feel directly affected by government action or inaction. Interesting, London Free Press reports that Obama's popularity has slipped. Reuters' Ipsos poll revealed on August 24th that 72% of respondents said they were very worried about joblessness and 67% concerned about government spending. 9.5% in unemployment rate, along with the lowest housing sales in 15 years, is killing the Democrats at the poll. And, um, but they say, before writing Obama off, though, his declining approval rating recalls a slide in popularity suffered by Ronald Reagan, who grappled with a recession in the early 1980s, lost strength in the congressional elections, before bouncing back with a second presidential term. So you can never always tell. But overall, this is the first time Obama's gone into a majority disapproval rate of 52%. I was just looking over here at uh, Vladimir Putin. Um, 86% polled oppose Putin's return. <laughs> and that was in the one open station they have in Moscow. But they said, oh, no, that's not really the way it is over there. And then I caught this, uh, which I can just go over very briefly. There was Obama's top job killers, which was a, an article written by... Um, Oh, Jim Powell in the Financial Post, Wednesday, August 11th. And basically they were, uh, and mind you, these are just the top 10, okay? There could have been hundreds, but um, his top 10 job killers. One, executive orders and regulations promoting compulsory unionism. Two, Obama's forced restructuring of GM. Three, Patient Protection and Affordable Health Care Act of 2010. Ex- extension of unemployment benefits to 99 weeks, almost two years. American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009, minimum wage laws increased, uh, restoring American Financial Stability Act of 2010. By the way, whenever you hear the government use the term stability, they mean stable at zero. (laughs) That's what they're shooting for. Moratorium on offshore oil drilling, expiration of the Bush tax cuts, Obama's runaway spending, and just a nightmare that they spell here. But you know what the common threat is through all of them, all of all our acts of aggressive violence by a government against its people, even when it's sold as a feel-good plan. When you look at the effects of what's happened to some of these things, for example, Patient Protection and Affordable Health Care Act of 2010, Obama, Obamacare's mandates, which is force, taxes, which is force, and penalties, which is force, kick in when an employer has more than 50 employees. And they apply to all employees, so one effect of the law is to discourage small business, which creates most American jobs from hiring more than 50 people. End of story. That's what happens. And then they talk about extending unemployment benefits and, of course, minimum wage laws. Uh, They talk about how minimum wage laws discourage hiring. 
Again, that's force being introduced into the marketplace. And in this, in this context, again, the, the term discourage hiring is an economic term since the, the so-called discouragement occurs only on a large collective statistical scale when you look at it that way. But in moral terms, when you're talking about individuals, the correct term is to prohibit hiring since the particular individuals whose skills fall under the minimum wage levels, they lose their jobs in no uncertain terms. There's no gray about it. It's not, uh, you know, just discouraged, <laughs> completely off the map. And it's black and white on the moral level, and it always is. So these are just some of the things that our leaders of today are leading us into. Just a huge, huge mess. Now we're going to turn to a little bit of an example of uh, leadership yesterday in leadership today. You want to tell us a little bit about that, Robert? Yeah, what uh, you're going to hear in these upcoming clips. First one is uh, by General Douglas MacArthur in a farewell speech to the United States Congress in 1951. Wow, before I was born. Yeah, yeah, me too, and a lot of our listeners. So give a listen to that and listen to uh, the words he uses, how he's able to inspire people and uh, and tell it exactly the way he means it. And then that's followed by uh, a speech by... Uh, President Obama when he won the uh, Democratic primary in New Hampshire in 2008 before he became president and just listen to some of the the words he has to say and and compare them. We'll be back after this. I know war as few other men now living know it and nothing to me and nothing to me is more revolting I have long advocated its complete abolition as its very destructiveness on both friend and foe has rendered it useless as a means of settling international disputes. Indeed, on the second day of September 1945, just following the surrender, of the Japanese nation on the battleship Missouri, I formally cautioned as follows. Men, since the beginning of time, have sought peace. Various methods through the ages have been attempted to devise an international process to prevent or settle disputes between nations. From the very start, workable methods were found insofar as individual citizens were concerned. But the mechanics of an instrumentality of larger international scope have never been successful. Military alliances, balances of power, leagues of nations, all in turn failed, leaving the only path to be by way of the crucible of war. The utter destructiveness of destructiveness of war now blots out this alternative. We have had our last chance. If we will not devise some greater and more equitable system, our Magadan will be at our door. The problem basically is theological and involves a spiritual recrudescent and improvement of human character that will synchronize with our almost matchless advances in science, art, literature, and all material and cultural developments of the past 2,000 years. It must be of the spirit. 
if we are to save the flesh. But once war is forced upon us, there is no other alternative than to apply every available means to bring it to a swift end. War's very object is victory, not prolonged indecision. In war, there is no substitute for victory. American majority can end the outrage of unaffordable, unavailable health care in our time. We can bring we can bring doctors and patients, workers and businesses, Democrats and Republicans together, and we can tell the drug and insurance industry that while they get a seat at the table, they don't get to buy every chair. Not this time, not now. Our new majority can end the tax breaks for corporations that ship our jobs overseas and put a middle-class tax cut in the pockets of working Americans who deserve it. We can stop sending our children to schools with corridors of shame and start putting them on a pathway to success. We can stop talking about how great teachers are and start rewarding them for their greatness by giving them more pay and more support. We can do this with our new majority. We can harness the ingenuity of farmers and scientists, citizens and entrepreneurs to free this nation from the tyranny of oil and save our planet from a point of no return. And when I am president of the United States, we will end this war in Iraq and bring our troops home. And welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can join us at 519-661-3600 to join the conversation. So what did you think of those two speeches in comparison? Well, he followed through on his promises. The war in Iraq is over. He declared so the other night. 50,000 troops still there? Oh, well, that's, they're just make-believe. <laughs> we don't really notice them, do we? No, no. You know, I was just amazed at listening to him repeat the term, our new majority, our new majority. Respect my majority. Yeah, as as though that were some ticket to some respect, as you say, you know. And he talked about the tyranny of oil. Isn't that ironic, what happened under his watch? (laughs) He got a bit of tyranny of oil in a way he never ever expected. But of course, the true tyranny that we have to worry about is the tyranny of the majority, which is... Obama. <laughs> the tyranny of Obama. Yeah. An abomination. <laughs> oh, oh, that's, that's a good. double entendre, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. <laughs> so let's go back to that clip with General Douglas MacArthur. Mm-hmm. That was a speech of a leader, yes. and in this case a military leader, but uh, a man who could command men to their deaths and has done so, change the course of history with his words and deeds and do so with dignity and style. His language, at least during that speech, was not colloquial, but formal and romantic in style. 
He spoke with a directness, and it was impossible not to understand exactly the meaning of his words or his intent in saying them. In that half-hour speech to Congress in 1951, MacArthur was speaking of the horror of war, but yet its absolute necessity against potential adversaries like, in that time, communist China and the Soviet Union. The enemy was clear and real in 1951. Now contrast MacArthur's speech with the speech we just uh, heard by Barack Obama on winning the Democratic primary in New Hampshire in 2008, and you'll notice a marked difference in these two, quote, leaders. Obama's speech is the speech of a man vying to become the commander-in-chief of the American forces, yet also of a politician. He too would commend men to their deaths and change the course of history with his words, but not with dignity and style, for in his speech, his enemy is the American people, not some foreign aggressor. He spoke not with directness, but with evasiveness, with nebulous platitudes and cliches. It was difficult to understand what he meant, for example, when he would say, Quote, we can stop sending our children to schools with corridors of shame and start putting them on a pathway to success. Yeah, I was scratching my head. What is he talking what about? What is meant by corridors of shame? How are you going to put them on a pathway to success? He's talking about the current public school system? <laughs> by paying teachers more, as he alluded know. to? If the teachers are so great, as he says, why do corridors have corridors? Why do schools have corridors of shame? It's just gobbledygook. What is meant? by the tyranny of oil, as you say. When it is oil, that got us out of the horse and buggies and into cars and trucks and created a modern nation. Mm -hmm. Tyranny? How exactly is he going to save our planet from a point of no return? No return from where? What is he talking about? Platitudes and cliches. That's what we get from Obama. Well, he made one thing clear. He's going after the drug and insurance industry. You oh, know, like yes, a, he made... They get a seat at the table, but they don't get to call the shots. Well, excuse me, but they're the ones who insure people, and they're the ones who create the drugs that you want to control. Exactly. When Obama speaks, he doesn't speak of clear-cut and real enemies to America, like communist China or North Korea or the jihadists. He has to make up enemies to rally the crowd. The enemies are pharmaceutical companies, big business... How big is, is big is left up for you to decide, I suppose. Capitalism, the education system, the health care system, paper tiger enemies created to elect a politician, certainly not a leader. The chant of the crowd of we want change is equally as unintelligible. Change from what to what? Hey, that was the, did you hear the opening clip? That, that was the words they were talking when they all cheered the chancellor coming to Germany. Yes, saying, when oh, change, change, oh, finally, <laughs> yay. And they got it. They got the change they were looking for. Right. Things were certainly different after Hitler. <laughs> That's for sure. So, so change from what to what and how. You know, when I first heard it, I thought it was chilling, actually, to hear those, the crowd say, we want change. Absolute, mindless, mindless chanting like the chants of a mob in Tehran today, or 1937 Berlin. The crowd were giving Obama a blank check for change. Isn't what that... change? It doesn't matter, just change. Change for the better? Doesn't matter, just change. Change at any price? Doesn't matter, we want change. So when Obama, Obama spends a trillion dollars and sends the nation into a prolonged period of increased unemployment, which he's done, and recession, which he has done, the crowd that shouted, we want change, has only itself to thank for the change 
that they got and change for the worse. You know, it's an interesting phenomenon, but even with the worst of the world's dictators, and this is hard to understand for most people, that they come in on a popular regime of some sort. Somebody has to like these people in order for them to even get into power. And that's part of the great mystery, isn't it? What was so exciting about what Adolf Hitler had to say to all those Germans? They were otherwise relatively intelligent people. In the movie we, we, we played those clips from today, from um, um, The Mortal Storm, here you had the story of a family that was getting along wonderfully with each other until Hitler came in, and by the end of the movie, they all you know they end up literally killing each other mm-hmm. because they're on different sides. You know, and there was a Jewish person involved in all that nonsense. So, what is it that they even thought was this mystical dream in their head? I can't. It's hard to grasp because these things have never come to manifest themselves. There's never been a leader who saved quote quote saved the people, except in the sense of a very narrow. Um, issue of where a country's under attack. Exactly. And I'll get into that a little later, yes. too, but why you need clear... Uh, there, there this is, is a one need of the reasons leaders. MacArthur mm-hmm. stuck out more like a leader. He had a very specific task. And other leaders of the past, um, modern leaders of the past, who uh, shone specifically because they were uh, marshalling troops in a very clear war. But not for today. And today's leaders are certainly not leaders in the sense they're they should be just administrators, basically. And I, I'm going to get into that as well. But at first, I'd like to quote from uh, Leonard Peikoff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leonard, this is from uh, Nazi Politics by Peikoff, an exer- excerpt from the ominous parallels uh, reprinted in the Objectivist of May '69. Quote: Niccolo Machiavelli was the first influential theoretician of power politics in the modern world, and Tudor to a whole string of dictators in the centuries that followed. Men, in his view, are irrational, passion-ridden, power-seeking creatures. Realism, therefore, demands that political leaders dispense with moral idealism and with any ethical considerations and confine themselves to a cynically amoral manipulation of men as they are. In his famous manual for aspiring rulers, The Prince, Machiavelli outlines the technique by which a sufficiently ruthless man can use force and lies to gain and keep political power. And with that in mind, I think of Obama, I think of Harper, I think of any leader that we have in modern history today. You know, with Harper in town today, I just had to mention this article by by uh, David Aiken in the London Free Press, August 26. Can Harper continue Deef's legacy? <laughs> and he's talking about the... Deef had a legacy? <laughs> yes, and apparently um, Harper can. And what is his number one accomplishment, according to this writer? It is, and he quotes, If historians look back on the most significant thing Harper has done during the first five years of his premiership, it will be for an initiative involving Canada's Aboriginal peoples, the Residential Schools Apology. Oh, my. That's the best we can That's hope for as a legacy from me. Actually, you know something? I would prefer that, that if that was the best legacy, then that's great. Just think of the legacies of, say, Trudeau. Yeah, if it ended there. <laughs> yeah, that'll be fine, yeah. you know. But just think of the, the legacies of somebody, a man like Trudeau, which was uh, official multiculturalism, official bilingualism, um, you know, massive debt. Think of um, any other prime minister, and um, if you, the ones that don't have a legacy are probably the best prime ministers. Very true, probably because they, they kept out of everybody's business. Right. I think it's time to take a little break for a smile, wouldn't you say? I think so. We'll be back right after this. Now, may we perhaps discuss government business, Prime Minister? You were saying that you'd been thinking. 
Ah, yes. I think we agreed that so far my premiership has been a great success. Oh, indeed. Yes. And I've been asking myself, what can I do to continue this run of success? Have you considered masterly inactivity? Uh, no, Hunter. <laughs> the Prime Minister must be firm. Indeed. How about firm masterly inactivity? <laughs> but I shall be firm. I've decided to cancel Trident, channel 15 billion pounds into conventional forces, and reintroduce conscription. At one stroke, we shall solve our defence, balance of payments, unemployment, and educational problems, all at once. What do you say, Humphrey? <laughs> you can't just reorganise the entire defence of the realm just like that. I'm the Prime Minister. Yes, but... I have the power. Yes, within the law and the constitution and the constraints of administrative precedent, budgetary feasibility and cabinet government. Now this is it. Ah, good. Um, what is it? The trigger, Prime Minister. The trigger? The nuclear trigger, the button. Oh, this? Uh, indirectly, <laughs> yes. This is the telex communication with HMS Northwood. You would send a coded signal, and the telex operator, Northwood, would send an authentication signal. So he knows it's from you, you see. And when the instruction's been authenticated and the target indication made, Northwood would send a command to one of our Polaris submarines, and they'd press the button. Just like that? Just like that. When I say so? When you say so. Wouldn't anybody argue with me? Charging <laughs> officers obey orders without question. Well, what if I have to get drunk? <laughs> well, it would be safe if you didn't. <laughs> well, it's your job and you wanted it, Prime Minister. <laughs> oh, my goodness, that's funny. Hey, Robert. Oh, indeed it is. I love, yes, Prime Minister. Uh, uh, firm, masterly inactivity. <laughs> That's what That's gets actually right. the administration basically telling the politicians who come and go that the best mode of action to keep the country stable is do nothing. Yes, do as little as possible. And I, I agree with that. It's, it's, it's essential today, and I, I think the modern leadership, that they just keep their hands off, let people get on with the life that they've already of, been of course, used to. There's the other problem of the administration itself, which has so many of its own initiatives that politicians just follow merrily along with. So oh, sure, but you know really, something? that They're, they're really also forgiven. the creation of politicians. Politicians creating bureaucracies <laughs> and ministries that we don't need. They're oh, the yes. result of action. It's a, it's a two-way street, that's yeah. for sure. Let's go back to that quote I was just saying with uh, Niccolo Mach Machiavelli, mm -hmm. quoting from Leonard Peikoff. Now, you might think that Machiavelli's advice was to men like Hitler and Stalin, which they were. But his advice is just religiously followed by men like Obama and Bush and Stephen Harper and Angela Merkel and every other political leader in the world. These people are creating enemies where none exists and destroying Western civilization bit by bit with the sole motive of staying in power. As you just heard from Yes, mm -hmm. Prime Minister, how do I keep the success going? Yes. You know. Just as Isabel Patterson said, politicians always have to justify their existence and yes. their success. What it's, It has to be difficult, given that they really have no purpose. It's true. No, you know? Absolutely true. So when you think of, for, for example, Stephen Harper's in town today, opening up um, a cargo transport thingy over at the airport. I'm not exactly what mm -hmm. it's for, but you know something? 
Um, well, the, well, the federal government to, spent money on yeah. that project. So you have to understand that he's doing this not for you. He's not doing this for trade. He's not doing this for the country. Stephen Harper is in town today for his own selfish reasons of trying to keep uh, getting elected. That's it. When it comes to a politician, that is their prime move, move uh, motive. No, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? You wouldn't even argue in his case that the grander motive of his even being here. Is a, is something more noble? <laughs> no, Maybe, you don't think so. I don't think so. Okay. No, I don't trust these people as far as I could throw them. None of them, not one. Well, that's a pretty damning statement. No, I've I've rubbed shoulders with these people, and I personally understand that their motive is to destroy. They do not create. They cannot create. What did the federal government just spend opening this this well, uh, facility? Now, Eight I, million dollars, I think. I agree with you that a lot of their actions are destructive. I wonder, though, are their motives destructive? I wonder if they even know what they're doing half the time. Well, um, most of the time, it's the administration pushing things and, and the necessity. Of, like you say with the Napoleon, he was just a rag doll in front of a moving mob, mm-hmm. as uh, Isabel Patterson sort of indicated. And the same with Harper. There's a lot of motion motions out there as... Uh, as um, Preston Manning would have called them vectors mm. that you put a political leader in front of, and it doesn't matter if it's Harper or Layton or Ignatiev or whoever, they're going to go in the same direction because the momentum of yes, the masses that's is exactly pushing exactly what there. Patterson was talking about. Right. Yeah. Another quote from Leonard Peikoff. The American system is not a democracy. It is a constitutional republic. A democracy, if you attach meaning to terms, is a system of unlimited majority rule a form of collectivism, which denies individual rights. The American system is a constitutionally limited republic, restricted to the protection of individual rights. In such a system, majority rule is applicable only to lesser details, such as the selection of certain personnel. But the majority has no say over the basic principles governing the government. It has no power to ask for or gain the infringement of individual rights. And that's from uh, Leonard Peikoff's The Philosophy it's of Objectivism. It's perfectly with what Patterson said right, right on when yeah. she said, you know, you, you have to have permanent institutions, not permanent people. That's right. You change the people in the institutions. So when we go to an election... We really should be electing ideal... our administrators, not our politicians. When we go to an election, that's dangerous, too. When we go to an election in an ideal situation, what we're talking about here, we're simply um, taking care of one of the lesser details of our parliamentary democracy, and that is a selection of a certain personnel. It shouldn't be leaders out to change things. It should be people interested in administrating the status quo, administrating the system as it is, which is work. status quo. Yeah. yeah. A proper status quo. We're not there right now. We've got a lot of things to change. So that's the, that's the issue, isn't it? Yeah. According to Peikoff, once you have a system of government in place with a constitution and a clear set of laws and values, it only remains to select certain personnel to administer the system. Over the past hundred years or more, with rare exceptions, such as with war or perhaps the expansion of individual rights, uh, like with uh, blacks and women, um, there have been no need for any of our so-called leaders to change laws, to increase regulations, to restrict people's rights, to tax us into submission and servitude to the state. These aren't leaders, they're looters. When I listen to the speeches of men such as General Douglas MacArthur, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Sir Winston Churchill, I get a sense of awe at their passion for being reluctant leaders, for positive change in a difficult times with clear enemies. On the other hand, when I listen to speeches from Barack Obama, 
Dalton McGinty, Stephen Harper, Jack Layton, Michael Ignatiev, I get a sense of revulsion. I know that I'm not listening to leaders, I'm listening to men out to harm me. I know that every time they open their mouths, they are lying to me. I know that with every word, they're planning to rob me of more of my freedom and wealth and are planning on taking the country down the path of destruction towards a police state. History bears this out. The modern political leader is a demagogue. And to quote the definition, demagoguery is from the ancient Greek, Bob. Mm -hmm. Demos means people and agion if I'm pronouncing that correctly, it means to lead. It is a strategy for gaining political power by appealing to the prejudices, emotions, fears, and expectations of the public, typically via impassioned rhetoric and propaganda. And if you listen to any of the speeches out there by Obama or Harper or you name them, they will fit that bill to a T. They are trying to get power by appealing to our prejudices, emotions, fears, and expectations. Unless the issue up for discussion is war, then when you hear someone calling themselves a leader or being called a leader by others, like the media, you better run for the hills. Because <laughs> in this day and age, what you're going to get instead of a leader is a demagogue. And that's what we've got today. Yeah, they're all over the place, but you know, there's that old catch-22. Aren't, aren't they just saying what, quote, we want to hear? Because that's what they have to say to get elected. That, I think, is, is talk for another day when, when I'd like to talk about perhaps having a constitution which can put limits on democracy and mob rule and majority rule. I think that's a, that's a discussion for another day, but you're right about that. They are doing what the mob is, is asking for, but that doesn't make them leaders. Exactly. You know, that's the same process that occurred with the collapse of Rome, when Rome became more socialized in terms we might say today. It was, uh, you know, the Roman Senate fell prey to the will of the masses, and that's what really happened in Rome, and it never recovered. People always talk about the fall of Rome, not the rise of Rome. They forget what made it great in its time, and on, we have talked about that on the show. But of course, politics being what it is, if you talk to the average politician, they'll say, I can't do good things for the country and unless I get elected first. In order to get elected, I've got to tell people what they, what they want to hear. If I tell them the truth, everything I tell them is another reason not to vote for me because a lot of people don't like to hear the truth. You think that's the situation we're in? We'll just go back to that Obama speech. Um, what did he actually say during that speech? Basically, nothing. There were no set plans of action to do anything except clearly identify an enemy as being business, pharmaceutical companies, George Bush. Okay, they're the enemy. I think he implied in that speech, though, that anybody listening to it, you know, the American voter, was going to really benefit greatly from these plans, whatever they might be. You know, it's change. Oh, that's the whole, that's the whole point. <laughs> you have to make the populace uh, think that they are going to benefit. Otherwise, they wouldn't vote you. Of course so. The actuality, of course, is that once they're in power, everybody doesn't benefit. Everybody becomes a victim because now they identify the, f the fact that they were the enemies that he was alluding to in the first place. Yes. Well, it's a sad state of affairs, I think, politics in general. It's uh, also the issue of, you know, we were talking about world governance. Who's really in control anymore of anything? It's not just the fact of the market economy handling itself. It's, it's, it's like world government that we were talking about last week. 
who really, where does the ultimate authority emanate? And this, so many politicians feel even powerless. You hear this at the municipal level all the time. Well, we can't do anything about it. The province is forcing us to do this, right? right. So there's coercion through the whole system. That, that's another thing is the municipal elections coming up, talking about leadership. My God, what a misnomer when you want to talk about leadership in a provincial ele- or a municipal election. This is a corporation designed to make sure that the roads are paved, the water comes yeah, through the pipes. We need leadership for this. We yes. need leadership. You need administrators. You need people who are going to say that, know I'll do this effectively. I'll make sure that your water won't get shut off when the roads will be paved. That's all you need. You don't need people out there saying, I'm going to go on a travel chunk at the China to make sure that we have investment in the, in the city. Yeah, right. <laughs> Well, I'm not holding my breath waiting for leadership in the municipal election, I'll tell you that right now. (laughs) But we can't hold our breath much longer because we've got to go and get out of here this week, and we hope that you'll join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, hey, be right, stay right, do right, act right, and think right, and be right back here. See you then. Fade into colour, colour into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Sir Humphrey. Yes, Bernard. I wondered if I could have a word. Yes, Bernard. Uh, with uh, both of you. Yes, what about? Well, the PM seems to be completely in the dark. Good, excellent. <laughs> anything else? Well, I wondered if there was anything he doesn't know. Well, I hardly know where to begin, Bernard. <laughs> uh, no, I mean anything important. Well, he has the Foreign Secretary to tell him. Uh, yes, I know, sir. He seems to think the Foreign Secretary doesn't know the whole story either. I should hope not. (laughs) Are you implying that the Prime Minister ought to know what's happening? Well, he he is the Prime Minister. Yes, Bernard, but it's simply too dangerous to let politicians become involved with diplomacy. Diplomacy is about surviving until the next century. Politics is about surviving until Friday afternoon. (laughs)